a very, very warm welcome uh, to St. Paul's uh, for this uh, forum meeting, and it's the first, as it were, of our renewed season, and uh, I'm very excited um, by what we're offering uh, to you this morning for this hour. Uh, let me just explain for those of you who haven't been to one of these uh, before, our speaker will speak for about uh, 40 minutes, and then we'll have a 20 minutes or so for uh, questions, and then we will wrap up um, I'll be very prompt, I promise you, at two o'clock, because uh, people have things to get to, uh, not least our speaker, who is going on holiday to Bologna uh, after this. Um, not that I'm at all jealous about that. Uh, let me just very quickly then go straight into uh, a welcome to our speaker. Keith Ward is a professorial research fellow at Heathrop College in London. He was, however, for 12 years the Regis Professor of Divinity at Oxford University. And before that, he held uh, many academic posts in Glasgow, in St. Andrews, in Cambridge, and here in London, where he was Professor and Head of Department of the History and Philosophy of Religion. He's admired amongst uh, many things for his writing. And I was just saying to him, I have counted 44 books of his. Uh, he doesn't even know how many there actually are, but I think there are 44. Uh, there may be, well, more on the way. In fact, one is coming out uh, later this year, so thankfully they don't look like they're stopping anytime soon. But the titles of those books uh, show the extraordinary range of his scholarship from why there almost certainly is a God and Christianity, a guide for the perplexed, to Kant's view of ethics, the big questions in science and religion, and is religion dangerous? Uh, and at the end of this, um, after we've finished at two o'clock, there will be an opportunity for you to buy uh, Keith's latest book, which he's speaking about today, Love is His Meaning. And it will be sold to you at a very handsome discount, uh, I promise you. Finally, a, a personal note. Keith was uh, my tutor in the philosophy of religion at King's College London, but he bears no responsibility at all for the outcome. Um, and it really is true to say that in those late 80s, uh, the students loved his lectures. They would even get out of bed to go and hear Keith Ward. Uh, those lectures I remember vividly. They were funny, provocative, teasing, assured, and always generous. I can honestly say that nobody made me think more vigorously, more frustratedly, and more excitedly than one Professor Ward. Uh, those days of me thinking any of those things have gone really now, uh, but I do remain an enormously grateful student of his, and I'm very pleased at last to have the opportunity to say that to him. His work falls into three types, philosophy, religion, and Christian theology. He is an idealist thinker, believing that the material universe is an expression or creation of a supreme mind. And his latest book is a short exploration of the teachings of Jesus and of the persistently figurative nature of those teachings. And reading it, it simply reinforced my view again that fundamentalism is to Christianity what paint by numbers is to art. So to help us encounter those teachings again and introduce us to his latest book, Love is His Meaning, would you please join me in welcoming Keith Ward. Uh, thank you very much indeed, Mark. I feel that my obituary has just been given. <laughs> Well, I shall go on, nevertheless. Now, this book, Love is His Meaning, you probably it's from Mother Julian of Norwich, and uh, she says, in the end, about Jesus, love was his meaning. Uh, and so this is about the teaching of Jesus. It's not meant to be a very academic book. It's got no footnotes, uh, and um, it doesn't make a lot of reference to learned texts by other people. 
but it is a trying to get to grips with what it is that uh, Jesus is recorded as saying in the Gospels. Now, uh, it's a very short book, but it has different sides to it. And I'm going to just take the, uh, the bit at the end. It's actually on page uh, 87. Uh, you can tell it's short. Page 87 is near the end. Uh, and in there I make um, uh, five statements, and I'm going to make them now. And I think these statements to some people might sound shocking, I, perhaps not to most people, but to some people, and I want to show that they're not shocking at all, and they're perfectly sensible, and that they're actually true. And the fact that nobody else agrees with me is just something I have to deal with. So the first statement is that the Gospels are not verbally inerrant. They're not verbally inerrant. That's okay. The second one, um, there is no eternal hell. That would shock some people, because they hope I'm going there. The third one is that Jesus made, gave no specific moral teaching at all. That shocks some people. Uh, the fourth one is there's, the world is not going to end and we're all going to die. That's a bit shocking for some people. That is to say Jesus is not coming on the clouds next Friday. And the fifth one is there is no exclusive salvation for Christian believers. Christians are not by any means the only people who get saved. So those are the four, and I've saved them very bluntly. The whole book uh, looks at the recorded words of Jesus to try to show that that's what he actually said or implied. So that's the argument. Uh, and now I go through those statements and say uh, what, what they actually mean, because they're not as shocking as it might seem. I, I do think that the Bible is... Uh, uh, an inspired witness to the Word of God. But I think for Christians, the Word of God is Jesus Christ in person. In the beginning was the Word, and that doesn't mean in the beginning was the Bible in the authorized version. It does mean uh, that Christ was God, and Christ was incarnate in the person of Jesus. And, the, of course, the Gospels are the only uh, historical records we have of Jesus, so they have a very high status for Christians. Not only are they records of Jesus, they actually, I think, were written and meant to be little collections of little homilies or sermons. So when you get a little piece uh, in the New Testament of teaching by Jesus, that's meant to be, as it were, a sermon by somebody in the early church who, out of memories of what Jesus had indeed said, was using this to inspire in people a sense of God as God is revealed in the person of Jesus. But as for the Gospels being inerrant, I don't see how anybody can possibly believe this, because for a start there are four Gospels, and you know that the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are very different in style from the Gospel of John. Uh, and in the th first three Gospels, Jesus teaches in parables, uh, which are stories, according to Mark's Gospel, which were made, uh, said to people, in order that they would not understand them. That is not what I was taught as a little boy. I was taught that parables are nice little stories, so you'll understand everything about the Kingdom of God. Isn't that nice? But actually, they're not that at all. They're so that you won't understand about the kingdom of God. So that's the first mystery. There they are. Uh, the parables are intended not to make things clear to you. And in fact, if you look at the teachings of Jesus, none of them make anything clear. They all leave you in a state of complete bewilderment. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? Well, you should give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and you should give to God what is God's. And you think, okay, everything is God's, but on the other hand, Caesar might have something. Uh, what the heck is he saying? And of course, nobody knows. If anybody in this room thinks they know what he meant, you're wrong. You're just mistaken. <laughs> nobody knows. And Jesus nearly always answered the question with a question. You know, he didn't really get... There are no direct answers uh, in the whole of the Gospels. More than that, of course, Jesus almost certainly spoke in Aramaic. Now, we don't have Aramaic, just about four words in the New Testament. We have Greek. So how do we know that the Greek is a translation of the Aramaic, or what the Aramaic was? We don't have any, well, we have four. Uh, we hardly have any 
actual statements that Jesus made because he said them in Aramaic. It's like listening to somebody speaking French and then you get an English translation and you say, is that what he or she said? And the answer would be, well, it's a bit like that, but actually in French it would have a different connotation altogether. You know? uh, and so, so it is with Jesus. So again, we can't really be sure of what he really said. And then when you look at the Greek, uh, well, of course, it differs from one gospel to another and you get slightly different records. Uh, of the same uh, thing. I mean, uh, the, the event is usually remembered, okay, but you give a different spin on, on what it said. One that I talk about in the book is that Jesus said in Matthew's Gospel, uh, nobody can be my follower. I'm using a very loose translation today. Nobody can be my follower unless he hates his father and mother. And the word is hate. And you think, Oh, that's what it says in Greek. Did he really say that in Aramaic? And why, anyway, what does hating your father and mother mean? So you look in Luke's Gospel and you find he didn't quite say that. He said, unless they prefer me to your father and mother. That's a different thing to say. So which was right, Luke or Matthew? Well, again, if you think you know, you don't. Nobody knows who was right. People make their individual choices. I like Luke's gospel. I always prefer Luke. He's got the good Samaritan and the prodigal son. Yeah, Luke's a good bloke. I don't like Matthew very much. He's got a lot of gnashing of teeth and stuff like that. Uh, but that's a, just a personal thought about it. The fact is, here were two views of Jesus, and the people emphasized different aspects of what he said, because obviously their personality was going into what they wrote, and it comes out in what they write. So when I say the Gospels are not inerrant, I mean it's just we don't have the actual words and we don't know what they meant in the context in which Jesus gave them. And that's just obviously true. So people who say the Bible is inerrant, I, I, can't, I, I really can't understand that. I, I don't think they've... Well, I know they have read it in Greek, so I understand it even less. Anyway, that's what I mean. I don't mean they're not uh, inspired. Uh, I think they are inspired. I think God, I will quote from Vatican II definition of its scriptural uh, inerrancy. It's this, the Bible is inerrant in every respect in which God wants there to be something that is relevant to human salvation. Okay, it's as bad as Jesus, that one, because you don't know what it means. In what respects does God want something to be relevant? Which bits of the Bible are really relevant to salvation? Not the bit about slaying all the Amalekites, I presume. Uh, so it leaves it to you, really. So there is an authority. The, these, these words are witnesses to Jesus. I think, on the whole, uh, that they're accurate records of what Jesus said. It's just they're not inerrant. They reflect different points of view and they're put in different ways. But the testimony that Jesus was somebody who spoke in very puzzling, cryptic, uh, and uh, poetic ways, I think that's quite clear. Right, so that's the first one. Second one, no hell. Now, some of my friends love hell. I don't really know why. But everybody, every Christian, every thoughtful Christian has trouble with the idea of an eternal hell because God is a God of love. I mean, there's one thing that Jesus taught is that God forgives. And how often does God forgive? Well, one of the things Jesus actually is recorded as saying when he was asked, should I forgive? How many times should I forgive my brother? He said, uh, well, you know, uh, 70 times 7. Was it 70 times 7? I think I got that wrong. Uh, 49 times, anyway, 7 times 7. Uh, but of course, he didn't mean on the 50th occasion you can actually you know, not forgive anymore. He meant forgiveness is endless. You should always forgive. Well, God cannot do less than Jesus said his followers ought to do. So it must be true that God forgives without limit. Now, you may say, well, forgiveness requires repentance. I think that's true. Somebody must be open to God's love if they're to receive God's love. They must uh, accept the love of God, and they might not. But it's just that God will never, in the teaching of Jesus, never cease offering that love. And, uh, you know, there's a text, not in the words of Jesus, but actually in, uh, in the words of Paul, that not even death can separate you from the love of God. And there's a psalm in the Old Testament, if I go down to Sheol, the world of the dead, you, O Lord, are there. God is in the world of the dead. And uh, what's he doing in the world of the dead? He's not saying, ha ha, I got you now. God is still offering forgiveness if you will accept the love of God. 
So whether people will accept the love of God, we don't know. And we, we can't know that. But as Pope John Paul II said, we should certainly pray that everyone will accept the love of God and we should certainly uh, hope that God, uh, everyone will accept God's love. So I think it's now uh, more or less officially the view in the Roman Catholic Church that salvation is possible for absolutely everyone and God wills everyone to be saved. It's not the position that everybody will be saved, which is strong universalism. You'll all get saved even if you don't want to be saved. But it is the view that God, and it's in the letter of James, if you really want a biblical proof text, uh, and God wishes uh, everyone to be saved. And if what God wishes, of course, God must make possible, must at least make it possible. So for Buddhists, atheists, Muslims, everybody, it must be possible for them to be saved. We don't know the conditions of that possibility. As Christians, we know that we can be saved if we turn to Christ in faith, so that's a very positive thing to know. But we are not told that if you don't do this, you can't be saved. We are never told that at all. And of course, at the time of Jesus, uh, there was no, virtually no belief in eternal hell anyway. It's, it's virtually a Christian invention, a later invention. There's no word for hell in the New Testament at all. So it is an invention of the church later on. I think it's one of the worst inventions the church ever thought of. Uh, it's not, again, that there is no possibility of punishment after death. It's not that people can do what they want and they'll always get away with it. No, it is that... Yes, there will be punishment for sin, but God will always be prepared to forgive. And those two things have to go together. And I think in secular society today, we've come to a position where we say just retributive punishment for its own sake, even if it does no good, is what we should have. And in the British Penal Code, it says that's not right. Uh, the British Penal Code says actually all punishment must have a reformative uh, aim. I mean, it may not be possible to do that. We know it doesn't happen very often. But all punishments must be in principle reformative. They must aim at the good of the person who is finished, or who is punished. And what did Jesus say about that? He said the one thing which is perhaps distinctive, it's not a a specific principle, it doesn't tell you exactly what to do, but the one thing Jesus said which stands out is love your enemies. Love those who hate you. That is, be concerned for the good even of people who oppose and hate you. That is a basic moral principle of Jesus himself. And if Jesus taught that, then this is what God must be like. Uh, I use the chief text that I examine in this book, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, because I think uh, on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus sets out how Christians, people in general, ought to live. But at the end, he says, well, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be like God, which entails that God is like the perfect person you ought to be, and that means if you ought to love your enemies, then God certainly does. And this, I think, is a most important teaching in the modern world, where some religious people say God hates a certain sort of people. It could be unbelievers, uh, it could be all sorts of people. God hates people who hate God. God doesn't do that. Jesus said, you must love your enemies, be like God. So God cares for the good even of those who hate God. Now, of course, if somebody hates God, obviously they're not going to react well to the love of God. But you say, if we have a, a huge amount of time, and I suppose after death we will have quite a long time to go, well, I hope we will, I think we will, uh, then you say, well, given that time, and given what people will find out in what the Bible does describe as the flames, the flames of passion and desire, or the outer darkness of loneliness and uh, lack of love of other people, uh, people will discover that actually this is, this is an intolerable form of existence and they will then perhaps respond to the offer of love which God gives. So I think that's Jesus' teaching. It's, it's not explicit. Jesus doesn't say there's no hell. He doesn't use the word hell. 
Jesus said, it's true, there is punishment. Yes. You will become, after your death, the sort of person you have made yourself while you were alive. And that might be pretty unbearable. Remember Jean-Paul Sartre said, hell is other people. He could have added, it's also yourself. It is just what humans become if they give way to their own passions of hatred and greed and envy. But it's always possible to turn to love. And that's the message of Jesus. After all, Jesus said that this was good news. He didn't come to preach bad news. I mean, that, I did have a Bible in my possession once called the Bad News Bible. I don't know if you've heard about the Good News Bible. I quite like that. It's got pictures in. But the Bad News, Bad News Bible, it's all the bad bits of everybody suffering for a long time. And you think, is that why Jesus was taught about God? Is that what he taught? That God really hated lots of people? No, God is love. Love is his meaning. And if we've got a firm grasp of that, then the sort of hell, the sort of torture forever without any hope, it's written over the doors of hell, abandon hope, all ye who enter here, that is totally false. For Jesus never abandoned hope. You've got to put up with what you've become, but God can change you into something better. And uh, I think there's no reason to suppose that death will end that possibility. So that's what I think about that. God wants us all to be saved, and that's what Jesus was, uh, was teaching. That's what God wants. The third one is he, he had, Jesus had no specific moral teaching. Uh, some will say, well, he did, but remember Jesus was a Jew, he, in Matthew's Gospel, and again you've got to ask, uh, did Jesus really say this? Uh, I think he probably did. In Matthew's Gospel, uh, chapter 5, verse 17, so I read my Bible, uh, then, then, then Jesus says, unless you obey the least jot and tittle in the authorised version, the least subscript in Hebrew, right? the least little comma, if you like, least bit of punctuation in the Torah, you are the least in the kingdom of heaven. So he wanted the whole Torah to be kept. The Torah, 613 commandments by tradition, not 10, 613. Jesus taught, according to Matthew, you should keep the Torah. So he didn't have time to give any new commandments. I mean, he had 613 already. <laughs> so he didn't want any more. The point was, uh, can you think of anything specific Jesus said? Now, people sometimes say, by specific, I mean, you know, uh, never have an abortion. Or sometimes have an abortion. Or these are the conditions under which you could possibly have an abortion. No, Jesus said nothing about that at all. Did he say there shouldn't be any slaves? No, didn't say anything about that. Did he say the Roman Empire was corrupt? No, didn't say anything about that. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, that's all right. So what did he say? Well, people say, you can only think of two things. One is, he said, don't ever swear on oath, which I did when I became a priest. I swore an oath that I would obey my bishop in all things lawful, which uh, I decide what the law is in that case, but anyway. <laughs> so, uh, I did swear on oath, and if you're going to law court, Quakers won't swear on the Bible, because Jesus said, don't swear on oath. Do you take that seriously? And here's the point. I don't think anyone takes the, anything in the Sermon on the Mount literally. If your right eye offends you, pull it out. Now, I believe that in Arkansas, there is a church of one-eyed Baptists. <laughs> I'll have to take that back sometime. Um, but there are snake-handling churches. I have come across them, but I haven't actually come across one-eyed Baptists. People say, that's... That's not, what is it? It's, um, what do you call that? It's certainly hyperbole, it's certainly exaggeration. It must have a meaning, but it's not to be taken literally. Another one, I sometimes used to lecture at the Ministry of Defence, and they wanted me to talk about uh, the Sermon on the Mount, knowing it was important, and they wanted to know what it means to say, do not resist evil, do not resist evil. And of course you have to say, that's not meant literally, because if you took it literally, you wouldn't have a police force. You'd have nobody 
who resisted evil. So evil would rule the world. It nearly does, but it would completely if it wasn't resisted. If anybody asks you for something, give them it without question and more as well. No, you can't take those things literally. You'd be stupid if you did. You'd be really a fool. So what do they mean? Now, all I want to say, it's in the book, of course, you see, so I can make it short. Uh, all I want to say here is uh, they cannot be taken literally, but they have a profound meaning. But the meaning is stated in terms of hyperbole. It's a figure of speech which is not to be taken literally, but makes a point uh, that makes you think, without telling you what to do, that makes you think hard about what you ought to be doing. So if you say something like, do not resist evil, well, you know that if somebody is attacked, you will try and save them, and you'll know that you would use force, of course, if necessary to do this. Uh, but you'll ask, how far should I go? Um, is there any other way? Mustn't force be a last resort? It makes you think about the extent to which you are going to use violence. So the Sermon on the Mount really tells you things that make you think. Uh, it says, don't be content with just giving a little bit of your money away. Think seriously, how could you help uh, the poor of the world? But the literal form of it, give everything away, would mean you didn't have anything left to give to anybody else, so that would be silly. So you don't take the literal form. Okay, having said that, why do people then select two things out of the Sermon on the Mount, which they do almost take literally? One is, don't swear on earth, oath. And some people say, no, take that literally. Well, they can if they want. I'm all for Quakers. I think they're marvellous, you know, great. But I can't believe that Jesus meant that literally. People might feel a vocation to be pacifist, yeah. But I can't believe that Jesus was, uh, was saying... Uh, to the extent that you sh if somebody comes up and, and kills your family, you shouldn't resist. You should just let it happen. Now, I can't believe that. So, uh, when you think about the teaching of Jesus, what's the other one? On oath, that doesn't convince me. Divorce, that's the one. The reason God became incarnate was to prohibit divorce. Can you believe that? Did Jesus even say that? Well, yes, but then Jesus said, pull your right eye out. You don't take that literally, so why should you take comments about divorce literally? In fact, to cut a slightly long story very short, no Christian church takes what Jesus actually is recorded as having said literally. No Christian church does that. What Jesus actually said, according to the Gospels, and we've got to make a little choice between the Gospels here, but in Matthew's Gospel he says you can have a divorce. It is possible. Namely, for something called, I have to say it in Greek because it's very difficult to say what the English word is. It was Aramaic, remember, so we don't really know what the exact word was. But in Greek it's pornea. You can have a divorce for pornea. You say, what is that? Now, I've consulted all the experts on Jewish thought at the time. And what they all tell me is, well, there were two main schools of thought. There was the hardliners and the liberals among the rabbis about divorce, and the hardliners said, uh, um, well, uh, no, the liberal, let's start with the liberals. The liberals said you can have a divorce for almost anything, because pornea, it just means indecency. Uh, right, it, means inde it doesn't mean adultery, that's a bad translation, it means indecency. And for the liberals, indecency means things you don't consider to be decent, like not eating with a knife and fork. So if your wife, so it was the man who does the divorce. If your wife doesn't eat with a knife and fork, you can have a divorce. That's the liberal view, quite widely held. Rabbi Gamaliel, various people like that. And Rabbi Hillel, perhaps most famously. But the hardline view, that's Rabbi Shammai, the hardline view was, no, it must be really serious. It must be things like burning the pudding. <laughs> Pornea did not. Although the word pornography comes from it, it did not mean just sexual sin. It did not mean adultery. It meant doing something indecent. And that could include all sorts of things. So it's not as hard line as it sounds, uh, but I don't know any church which actually takes that view. The Roman Catholic Church, which says marriage is indissoluble, that word is nowhere in the Bible. I mean, what's an indissoluble marriage? 
Well, of course, it's a metaphor. You become one flesh. You don't literally, you know, man and wife or whoever gets married to each other, they don't become one flesh. That would be a ridiculous thing to say. A monster with four arms. And... <laughs> no, it's a, it's a metaphor. So you said, what does it mean? Well, it means that they come to think and feel as one. But again, that's a metaphor. It's not quite true, but you can see the point of saying it. When you say, um, no, I won't go further into marriage. My wife is sitting in the back row. But um, I, <laughs> it is the case um, that a lot of things that you say about marriage are actually very hyperbolic or metaphorical. And this was true of Jesus as well. So all I'm saying here is, if you think Jesus actually prohibited divorce, that's not what the Gospels say. If Matthew correctly records Jesus, Jesus said you can have a divorce for porneia, and nobody's quite sure what that means. But you can have one, anyway. Then, of course, Paul has another one, which you know about, but that was Paul, so I won't talk about that. You can have a divorce if your wife's not a Christian, so that's okay. So divorce does exist, but if you look at Christian churches, well, the Roman Catholic Church Church says there's no such thing as divorce, which contradicts Matthew. Uh, uh, Baptists in America all seem to be divorced, as I was saying. All the ones I've met are all divorced, so they must think it's all right. Uh, and Greek Orthodox, uh, they think you can have a divorce uh, and you can be remarried uh, for, a, for serious reasons. So the, the churches don't all agree about that. If Jesus wanted to be clear, you'd think he would have said, you know, these are the conditions. No, he didn't. It wasn't at all clear. He was saying the union of two people, which intends to be a lifelong union of love and fidelity, is a very important human relationship which must not ever be intentionally broken. Now, that, I think, is really a strong moral statement. But it's not a statement about whether or not you can have a divorce under some marriage law which some state has dreamed up. Right, better get on to the next one, which is there's no end of the world. Ah, well, of course, there might be, I agree, but it's not the one God intends. I mean, if the world is going to end, it's because we're going to blow it up. But God does not want that. So what was Jesus talking about? This is going to get rather quick, right? He was talking about the end of the age. Nowhere in the New Testament does it talk about the end of the world. It's Ionios, uh, and it's the end of the age. And uh, what is the end of the age? I'll make this brief. I think, I'm just going to tell you what I think. It's true, of course. But, uh, <laughs> so, what, uh, what Jesus was saying is the end of the age of the Jewish temple sacrifices and the Jewish priesthood is coming to an end. And he was right. The whole Jewish people was uh, thrown away. Jerusalem was renamed. The temple was destroyed. That age of temple sacrifice, there are no priests in Judaism anymore, but that was the heart of Judaism. So it came to an end. That age is finished. That's the end of the age. And then what comes after the end of the age? Well, if you read the Old Testament prophecies, you'll see where these images come from. It's the angels blow their trumpets, the elect come from the ends of the earth to form a new community, and that is the church. These are symbolic ways of saying there will be a new community of people, not just Jews, drawn from the ends of the earth who come together and live inspired by the Spirit of God. And that's something new. It's a new age. So there's an interpretation uh, which just says this language is symbolic, poetic, metaphorical and hyperbolic all at the same time uh, and to understand that is not to say anything about the end of the world I mean um, because God has purposes for the world which aren't finished yet well, I suppose throughout Christian history you've always had people who thought the world literally was going to come to an end the one thing we can say about all of them which is undeniably true is that they were all mistaken. The world never did end. In 1000 AD, the Pope said the world was going to come to an end. No, no, it's still there. Luckily, the Pope didn't say that in 2000 AD, but other people did, of course. Some Mayan calendar or something said it was going to come to an end. It's something people like to think about. It's the equivalent of modern-day horror films. You know, it's something terrible. Uh, but it's poetry. 
It's poetry. And we have to learn to understand the symbolism that was used, the apocalyptic uh, language, as it's called, about the stars falling from the sky uh, and the moon becoming dark. Those were symbols in the Old Testament. They are, you can see that they're symbols for the Persian Empire or the Babylonian Empire. It's, it's the end of the rule of particular historical powers and, and uh, the hope for a, a society of justice and peace. So I personally don't like um, the expression which we get in our Anglican liturgy, um, Christ will come again. I, I think that's a misunderstanding, Christ will come again. Um, it doesn't actually, um, that's not in the Gospels at all. But what, it, what should be said is, well, I don't mind the phrase, I can reinterpret it in my mind, but I, the way I like to, to reinterpret it is to say, Christ will be present in glory and will be seen by all. I agree with that. But it's not going to happen next week. Uh, it's not going to happen with somebody riding along on clouds, you know, and angels blowing trumpets and raptures. The best-selling book in America is the, called the, what it's called now, about the end of the world. And the rapture, everybody, the pilot of your airplane disappears uh, because you raptured into heaven and uh, everybody else thinks, oh, now we're for it. Perhaps that'll happen this afternoon on my way to Bologna, but I really don't believe that. I mean, nobody really believes that. So you, you're saying, well, the end of the universe, and there will be one, will happen in billions and billions of years, but the end of the universe is not the end of human life because we live with God forever. And that is to say we will live with a God who has been genuinely revealed in the person of Jesus. That is the image of God which will be seen to be true. And in that sense, Christ will appear to all in glory. Because they will see that Christ is the wisdom of God, which was at the beginning of creation, will be at the end of creation, and was truly seen in the person of Jesus. So last thing, getting quicker and quicker now, but must be time for discussion, is everybody has the possibility of salvation. Well, in fact, I've covered that. But it is just that, you know, when Jesus spoke, he was spoke, speaking only to Jews. Remember he said, I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel, not to other people. But somehow the church saw that this wasn't the meaning of Jesus' teaching. He was speaking to Jews in that context. But again, his message was one of God's universal love for all. And you know, one thing Jews never do is to say, nobody else gets saved but us. Jews never say that. It's just not a Jewish thought. What God does with everybody else, well, that's God's business. But God has a business with us as Jews, and we've got to be loyal to our uh, calling, which is really to be a blessing to the world. And that's the ideal. So it is with Christians. We are the new Israel. We don't supersede the old Israel. We live alongside it but we are the new Israel. We are Jews, for gen we are Gentiles who are honorary Jews, if you like. So we've been inducted into the people of Israel and we don't have to get circumcised, which I'm quite pleased about. So you can say the new Israel is the church, which is the elect, not elected to be saved. We don't get chosen to be saved. We get chosen to save other people. We get chosen because we have a job to do in the purpose of God, which is to make the love of God universally known in our lives, which is a bit of a hard challenge, but also in our teaching. Our teaching must be that God is a God of unlimited love who will turn no one away who ever turns to God now or ever, and not even death will change that. So it's by looking at the teaching of Jesus that I've come to these convictions. Uh, and uh, I think uh, that it's worth looking at Jesus' teaching in, in detail. And to ask yourself the question with each one is, what, what does that actually mean? Does it mean I've got to seriously think about pulling my eyes out in conditions which are not specified? I mean, when does my eye offend me? I'm not quite sure, when I look at modern art, possibly. But, so, so taking it literally is just misunderstanding the whole thing. So I think the enemy of faith is literalism. And to look at the Bible as though it's an engineering textbook which tells you how big the ark was, is to miss the whole point of being a Christian. 
because there's only one point in the teaching of Jesus which is worth remembering and that is that love is his meaning and every statement of Jesus you read has to be interpreted in the light of that one underlying theme that God is love and there is nothing beyond the power of God's love. Well, that's what the book's about and uh, I hope uh, that uh, you would agree with me to some extent. Let's see. Thank you. <laughs> <coughs>
that God is somehow mm, actually identical with that human being. So you have to have a more sophisticated account of that, and you're very near giving that sophisticated account. So don't worry that I differ a lot from you, because if we talked for another hour, we'd found out we didn't differ a lot, but we had different concerns we wanted to stress, and you want to stress the absolute sovereignty of God, which I don't deny, and I want to stress the extent to which Jesus' life shows what God is really like. So he is the image of God, which is the biblical expression. But, so we're not as far apart as you're thinking, but I see, you know, people have spent their lives puzzling about this question, so I, I see why it's puzzling. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes, uh, I, I think by being saved, I mean from greed and pride and um, hatred and ignorance. Being saved from sin, in other words. Being changed in your personality so that you become a loving person rather than an evil person. That's being saved. Okay, I'm going to have to give you a very blunt answer again. Um, the theory of substitutionary atonement was invented specifically by John Calvin and was unheard of before that time. Uh, and it's very important to see John Calvin was actually criticizing previous theories of the atonement and presenting his own theory. It's not in the Bible. You have to read it into the Bible. I don't like it. Uh, I think it gives, uh, I think of God, and I'm quoting Thomas Aquinas when I say this, that God, if God had wished, would forgive everyone like that. No death of anyone is necessary. Right? I would actually quote Plato, who said, uh, if there were ever a just man, he would be killed. So anyone who stands for perfect justice and speaks the truth to power is in danger of death. And in the society in which Jesus lived, he would certainly have been crucified, and he was. He was crucified because he spoke truth to power. You could say this was, given the nature of human beings, that was inevitable. And in that sense, God knew <laughs> that Jesus would die and used Jesus' death for a good purpose. Now, he's to show love taken to its furthest extent. And that's it. But God forgives you whether or not Jesus died. And God would forgive anyone if they'd never heard of Jesus. Yeah. So just say, well, look, there have been at least five major theories of the, how the atonement works. Uh, and the least interesting one to me is John Calvin's, and that is the substitutionary theory of the atonement. It just happens that some people with loud voices claim it's the truth. It's very precise, isn't it? It's very precise. Uh, I think that this, Jesus' death is, is the ultimate symbol of self-giving love. And so, again, it's the ultimate symbol of what God is like. God is self-giving love. And that's what it shows. And it shows the evil of human beings who put a loving person to death. And that's right. You don't need all this stuff about you have to pay a price and it doesn't matter who pays it, uh, this person will pay it. Um, it's very... It's a theory I don't like, but uh, as a matter of fact, I was uh, very much influenced in my Christian life originally by people who believed this theory of substitutionary theory of the atonement, and so I don't, I wouldn't actually want to mock it. I just want to say it's immoral. 
Right. <laughs> but on, on a serious side, yep. this time that the Christians somehow got together to put up one case about Jesus being loved. Yes, I think it is, and I think it's happening. It is happening. Uh, in fact, if you go back to the 16th century, Cardinal Bellarmine, a very good Roman Catholic cardinal, said, as Catholics, we are bound to believe in hell but we are not bound to believe that there's anybody in it. <laughs> so, and John Paul II was quite clear that he hoped everyone would be saved. He wrote a book called The Threshold of Hope, in which he said that, it's, it's in print. And most of my Roman Catholic friends, I teach in the Catholic college at the moment, um, all agree that the one thing Christianity ought to teach is that Jesus is love, and if anything, whether it's about divorce or sin or anything, or people having to die for their sins, etc., if anything contradicts that teaching that God is love, there's something wrong with it. It's because of a human misperception of God. And I agree with that. Ah. Uh, um, well, the difficulty is that, of course, what we've got in the Gospels is not what Jesus actually said, but what was remembered by different groups of people and then collected together and translated into Greek and then written down by them in an edited book. Right? So we get a good idea of the sort of things that Jesus said, but I think anybody who says this is exactly what Jesus said and so therefore this is exactly what he meant, they don't have good evidence for what they say. You have to say, I would say Jesus was a great poetic speaker, a charismatic person certainly. His teachings are such you can see their moral power and force. But if you say, but every word of that is, is what Jesus said, I'd say no. There are words there which I find uh, so difficult that I probably would say that's, I, I can't see Jesus saying that. It must have got mistranslated. <laughs> right. But I wouldn't be dogmatic about that. I'd just say, well, you ask which is more inspired. Um, I think the inspiration has to go into the, the remembering and the collecting and the editing of the texts. Because Paul was writing letters, so that's rather a different thing. Right? Paul hardly only once mentions anything that Jesus ever said. Je Paul didn't know Jesus, and uh, Paul doesn't claim to remember what Jesus said. So they're different sorts of document, really. I like personally, I like Paul very much. Or, you know, um, but I think he had his hang-ups about women, uh, other things too. Uh, so, um, I, reg I regard them as inspired as, as wanting to say, I quoted Vatican II, which I agree with, I think that uh, God intended us to hear the message of God's love through these documents and made sure that the documents had that message. So, which is more inspired? No, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't rank them like that. They're, they're, they're both edited documents collected later on by people. And I think that whole process, yes, was was meant, was intended by God. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I guess where I'm coming from is, like, sometimes my religion makes me, what an apostle say is equivalent to what Jesus would have said. So... Oh, I see. Oh, uh, well, I suppose you would believe that if you thought the Bible was inerrant throughout. I mean, if you thought God had, as it were, dictated the Bible, then obviously it's all just true in the same sense. But I don't even begin there. I mean, uh, it, it's obvious to me that God didn't dictate the Bible because it contains lots of contradictions. The Last Supper in the Gospels was held on different days. <laughs> so, unless there were two Last Suppers, one of them is wrong. Now, I don't think that matters, but you know, it's just not infallible. So, that shows God didn't dictate it. I think Christians haven't usually believed at all what Muslims believe. I mean, Muslims believe God dictated the Quran. 
That was it. These are the words of God. Every word is God's word. We don't believe that about the Bible, do we? Sorry? I think you have to. You have to. I think so, yes. I think God dictated it to these disciples. Well, he wrote it down and he said it. I think. Didn't. Di I think that's a Muslim view of Revelation. A Muslim view of Revelation is that God, through the Archangel Gabriel, dictates words and they are many years later written down and those are the words of God. Uh, but n nobody thinks, I, I don't think anybody thinks, that when Paul was writing letters to churches, God was telling him what to write. Do you? Do. You do? Oh, okay, right, okay. Well, all I can say is most Christians don't. Right, so you can believe that, but you have to know, you really have to know, you're in a small minority, right? You're not speaking for, for the Christians. I, I wouldn't want to mock your view at all. Okay. Right. Okay. Well, that is what I would call a real fundamentalist view of scripture. God did put the words into the minds of people who wrote the documents, even though they existed thousands of years apart and said different things from each other all the time in different languages. <laughs> okay, you can believe that. I'm just saying, okay, this is a widespread belief. It's a minority belief among Christians and always has been. So you just have to be honest. I'm, my belief is a minority belief. See, I, I'm being honest when I say, look, this is what I believe, but most Christians don't agree with me on everything. That's okay. You've got to say the same thing. Most Christians definitely don't agree with you because most Christians who are all Roman Catholic would say, would say that, that it's not dictated. It is inspired, but that doesn't quite mean dictated. It means God oversaw and intended the general operation. It's a big, difficult topic. We've got time for one more. Like, okay. Yeah, okay, uh, I think my, my greatest anxiety about the church today is that when young men and women go to get trained to be clergy, they get taught all the sorts of things that I'm saying, they don't have to agree with me, they have to know I'm saying it, or people like me, Karl Rahner in the Catholic Church are saying it, uh, so they know about this, they get into parishes and they never mention it again. And that is the trouble with the church, that the priests are not being honest. They are afraid of the fundamentalists, because if they say something that sounds a bit shocking, somebody in their congregation will say, that's not Christian, I'll tell the bishop. <laughs> How do we deal with that? Well, we're all... I think the time has come when we have to say, let's not be obedient sheep of all these people who aren't saying what they've been taught. Uh, let's think for ourselves. There are actually, this is true, more lay people in England who are qualified in theology than there are priests who are qualified in theology. That's true, isn't it, Mark? It is true. So uh, the, you can no longer look at a priest and say they know about theology because you look at somebody in your congregation and say, ah, oh, they've got a degree in theology. That's... Having a degree, it's not the end of the world, but having a degree at least shows you know these problems about Greek and Aramaic, and you know that there are different views. Uh, and I think the clergy, by and large, are just afraid to, to say that loudly because people will attack them. If you read Twitter and stuff like that, they would say, oh, about me, they'd say, oh, this lunatic is destroying the church. 
well, that's not helpful. Ladies and gentlemen, I think you can see why those students got out of bed. Uh, um, Keith, I just want to thank you on behalf of everybody here. Uh, whether we agree with you, whether we don't agree with you, whether we're unsure what we think, uh, that's probably most of us. Um, but you have taught us, of, again, that you know, if you want to take the Bible seriously, that means that you ask of it serious questions. Uh, and questions that come out of an indifferent, you know, abstraction, but they come out of a, a, of a desire to love better, a desire to love God better, a desire to love each other better, and that's why we come to the Bible and to Christian faith seriously.